Well, good morning, everyone. I was just thinking back to what we've been able to uh, see happen already this year. It's been a really good start to the new year. We started out the first week by having communion together. And then the next week, we had the privilege of having one of our longtime ministry partners, longtime elders with us, Bill and Virginia Cook. And then we had a baby dedication service. We got to celebrate the gift of life and committing a family into the hands of the Lord. And last week, you got to hear about a new initiative that we're part of, of helping to get Bibles into the hands of believers and to help build strong churches in what is referred to as the Global South. And today we have another one of our global partners, Carol Johnson, with us. So thankful for all these signs of growth, so thankful for all the signs of God's grace, the things that are happening, the different partnering, both locally and around the world. What a good God we serve. And it's such a joy to be part of such a giving and vibrant community. Uh, just a reminder, next week we will be celebrating communion, so throughout this week take time to reflect on what that is and and come ready to celebrate with your brothers and sisters in Christ as we remember who Christ is and what he has done for us and as we approach the table together. The great Leonardo da Vinci was truly a Renaissance man, and he was no idler. He excelled as a painter, sculptor, poet, architect, engineer, city planner, scientist, inventor, anatomist, military genius, and philosopher. I get tired just reading that list. But though he was a hard and determined worker and strived for excellence and success in all that he did, he also knew the need for occasional rest. This is the wisdom that he would offer to others around him. He would say every now and then, go away, have a little relaxation, for when you come back to your work, your judgment will be sure, since to remain constantly at work will cause you to lose power of judgment. Go some distance away, because then the work appears smaller, and more of it can be taken in at a glance, and lack of harmony or proportion is more readily seen. Those are wise words. At times, we need to get away. Yes, we were created to work. Work was part of the original design and creation. It's not that we weren't created to work. We were. It's just it became difficult after the fall, but we were still created to work. But at times, when we're created that way, we also need to rest. God himself gave the pattern when he rested from the work of creation, though not from the work of preservation, thankfully, or we would no longer exist. But he sets the pattern, work and rest. And Jesus continued that, pass, that pattern as the Messiah. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the one who holds all things by the power of his word. He is the one who calls us to come to him and find our rest in him from the burden of rule keeping, from the expectations of religion. He who had more to accomplish than anyone in the history of the world, fulfilling God's eternal plan, being the redeemer, he who had more to accomplish knew the importance of withdrawing at times from the front lines to have a period of rest and a recharge. He came to be the redeemer 
the Savior, the Messiah, the Healer, the King, the Forgiver of Sins, the Sender of the Spirit, the Fulfiller of the Plan of God, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings. And he knew the importance of withdrawing at times. As we continue in our study in the Gospel according to Matthew this morning, we find that Jesus himself will take a sort of a break from the continual conflict that he has been in with the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll focus on the main things he came to do to accomplish as the Messiah of God. And Matthew, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to use a passage from the Old Testament, a prophecy, to show why Jesus goes away and give a wonderfully rich presentation of the nature and ministry of Jesus. Well, with that, as our introduction, as we prepare to get into our text this morning, I invite you one more time to rise for the reading of God's Word. We will study today Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. And the truthful and holy Word of God says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Father, at the reading of your word now, we sit at your feet and ask that you would guide us and lead us. You who know all hearts and minds, would you cleanse us in this time, banish all distracting thoughts, cause us to have a greater glimpse of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and have a better understanding of your word and how to apply it to our own lives. We desire to meet you through your word this morning, Father, as you give guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you follow along in your sermon outline, in your bulletin, or perhaps on the church app, we come to our first major point, which is a strategic withdrawal, a strategic withdrawal. But before going any further, let me say good morning to those of you joining us online. We're so glad you're with us. Thank you for setting some time apart to fellowship with us. And as you have your Bibles open, wherever you might be, we look forward to a study together in Matthew 12 this morning. Thank you for your participation with us this morning. A strategic withdrawal is our first major point, and our text begins, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Jesus had just had a confrontation. We took two weeks to look at it. He had a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he knew what they were up to. Because Jesus knows the hearts and minds of men and what is in them. We see that in places like John 2 and Revelation 2. So Jesus is aware of what people are thinking. He's aware of what people are doing. He knows what they are planning. By the time we get to these events in Matthew 12, he's also been in ministry for a while. He knows what it is to experience misunderstanding. He knows what it is to experience opposition from the religious leaders. Perhaps if we use modern language, we might say that he knows that the scribes and the Pharisees have malice aforethought toward him. They're planning, they're plotting, they're looking to do him harm. 
And we know that's the case because as we look at the verse that we finished with last week, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus is aware of what is going on. He also knows why he came to earth. He knows who will oppose him. He knows what he will accomplish. He knows that he will one day be put to death at the hands of those who oppose him, both from the Jews and from the Romans. But that time is not now. So Jesus goes away, not because he was afraid of his enemies or afraid of seeing them, but because he knew that the Father was in charge of the timing of his ministry. He was not afraid of dying, though he would experience very real human struggle with it. But he would only die at the divinely appointed time of the Father, not according to the hands of those who opposed him in his ministry. He does not necessarily avoid controversy, but he is not the one who will initiate it. He wants to defend the truth with courage and conviction, but he'll not squabble or fight just to squabble or fight. It would have been apparent to those in the synagogue on that day, after he had performed this miracle, those who were with him and those who were against him. So no need to have controversies just to have controversies. He came, he has a mission to accomplish. The scribes and the Pharisees, he knows they're committed to their ways of doing things, to their own interpretations of the laws, to their own rituals. And as we saw at the end last week, even going to the point where they will violate clear portions of the law to accomplish their own misguided interpretation of not only the law, but their man-made applications to it. They're set in their minds that they could not even see the grace and mercy that was operating right in front of them. And I think we're reminded then of the temptation that we may have in the words of John Calvin to build factories, uh, build idols and false gods in our hearts. That our hearts are just these factories that create things that we bow down and worship, that we serve, that we seek to please. And we want others to serve them just as we do. And that creeps into our thinking, that creeps into our way of doing things, that creates a spirit and an attitude of legalism where we want everybody to follow those kinds of things. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They had elevated their own way of doing things to the level of God's word itself. And so Jesus wants to bring the cure. He does bring the cure because the cure for legalism is the gospel. The gospel reminds us that no one is perfect. The gospel reminds us that the law was given to lead us to Christ. The gospel reminds us that Jesus fulfilled perfectly the law and the prophets, and he accomplished all righteousness. The gospel reminds us that those who are in Christ, who have repented from their sins, turned away from their own way, who have believed in him, are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And before the Holy seed of God are declared to be holy and forgiven and indeed righteous. So they don't need to strive after any forms of self-righteousness. So Jesus knows what they are up to, and he goes away from them. You might say he knows the value of a strategic retreat. As he follows the direction of the Father who is in charge of the process, he knows that he will accomplish his will, but it will be in the terms of the Father and the way that the Father has set. He did not come to be in perpetual conflict because as he has dealt with the Pharisees and the scribes over and over again, the French have a proverb that says, none is so blind as he who will not see. 
It wasn't created then, but it certainly applied to how the scribes and the Pharisees lived. In Psalm 2, we're promised that there will be those who will oppose God and oppose his anointed one, who is the Messiah. And they'll say, we don't want to be under the thumb of this leader. So they say, we will throw off his shackles. But we're told that God in heaven laughs at the plans of men. Because he says, I have appointed my king in Zion. And that all, he, will be, he will inherit all the nations and rule over them with a rod of iron. And therefore, you need to kiss the son. You need to embrace the Messiah or you shall perish. We see hints and shades of this conflict going on as we move through the gospel according to Matthew. We certainly see it here in Matthew 12. And so as we move on in our text, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there because he would be the healer of the masses. The healer of the masses. Jesus, aware of this, their conspiracy, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. We know from Matthew 1, he came to save his people from their sins. We know that he came to be the Messiah. We know that he came to accomplish the plan of God for salvation, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, not the traditions of men. He came to set his people free from bondage under the law, under legalism, and to keep them free from the slavery to a works righteousness attitude where we have to do certain things to please God. In Christ, God is already pleased with us. And from that position, then, we serve him because we love him. And as he withdrew, we are told that many followed him. We've seen enough now in the Gospel of Matthew to know that this is a common theme. In many places, they come from the hillsides and the countrysides and the villages, and they follow Jesus. They want to see him. They want to hear from him. They want to see what he'll perform. And you can imagine how quickly word gets out that a healer has come. They'd be excited about the miracle he's just performed where he has restored the shriveled hand of a man and the excitement that that would bring that a man is given back his dignity and is able to work and his family would celebrate. There would be celebrations about other miracles that he has performed. And so the, the, the stories would resound off the hillsides and the news would quickly spread. In the situation where many were suffering under difficulty, both economic and social, they'd be drawn to the mercy of Jesus drawn to the touch that he gives to those who come to him. And Matthew just doesn't go into all that. He just simply states it in summary form and says, and he healed them all. And oh, how we wish we had a list of the, the diseases that Jesus dealt with at this time. We can imagine as we look at the rest of the Gospels. But he comes to show the power of the kingdom of heaven that has come and with the arrival of that kingdom begins this vic victorious process over, over sin, over disease, over demons, over death, that will ultimately lead to his death on a cross, but resurrection from the dead. He healed those who came to him. And when he healed them, there were no failures. He's told us he's come to teach and to preach and to perform miracles and to tell people about the kingdom of heaven and to show the impact of that kingdom. The king is here. A new kingdom is here. But they need to come to him. Or they need someone to bring them to them, like we saw with the men who brought their friend that was on a mat, or like the man who came on behalf of his daughter. But these great physical miracles, as wonderful as they are, as the degree of liberation that they bring, point to a far greater liberation and a far greater healing. The healing that would come from our sins, the healing that would come from our 
overcoming our wickedness and our moving away from the kingdom of darkness and entering the kingdom of heaven because now we're clothed with the righteousness of God. But there's excitement in the air. People's lives are being changed. They're being transformed. People are brought to Jesus. They want to go out and share that, that news. But that would present a challenge to Jesus. And so our next point, he says, but keep it quiet for now. And he ordered them not to make him known. So we see that miracles are being performed, lives are being changed, crowds are gathering, the word is spreading quickly. We might say, this is a publicist's dream, right? This is success in public relations. But Jesus tells them not to tell others about who he is or about what he is doing. And this is one of several times in the Gospel of Matthew where we have this idea of the messianic secret whereby Jesus does not want others to tell others about him. And so we might be tempted to ask, why not? Well, if you've been in leadership in any kind of position for any period of time, you know that people do not always handle information wisely or appropriately. Or often they don't have the full story. Or often they only have a, a snippet. And often they want to be the first to rush out, even if it's not fully informed. Well, that would cause problems for Jesus. He needed to have time to instruct people into who he really is. The people did not have a proper understanding of the Messiah. They did not have a proper understanding of what he came to do and who he came to be and what he would accomplish. All they saw was they had a high tax bill and they were under great oppression by the Romans and they wanted it off. They wanted a military leader. They wanted a political leader. They just wanted to get rid of the tyranny of Rome. But he came as the Messiah, the Son of God, who would throw off a greater tyranny, the tyranny of the evil one, the tyranny of sin, of rebellion that has brought us into separation from a holy God. And so as his popularity spread and as the crowds would get larger, they would often almost get in the way because they were coming simply to get a free meal or simply to get a miracle or sim get something, one of the freebies that were handed out by Jesus. And it would become a hindrance to him in his ministry because, yes, he came to teach and to preach and to heal, but he came to prepare a group of men who would lead the church after he ascended back to heaven. And he knew that it was better to take some time to spend with a small group to really focus in and to train and equip than to simply run after and try to meet the demands of the crowds. And so Jesus at this time says, keep it down. Let me accomplish my work and my mission. Let me fulfill the Father's plan. Let me do it in his timing and in his ways. And that's why at times he says, don't go out and tell anyone. But he doesn't say that to us today. Now that he has accomplished his plan, now that he has fulfilled all righteousness, now that he has said it is finished, now that he has ascended back to the throne of God and has poured out his spirit, now he says, go out and tell everyone everywhere about what I've done and bring this message to the four corners of the earth, to all of the nations that people might hear. And so whereas back in those days of Jesus, we might say that people had an immature zeal. They had zeal without proper knowledge. We need to be careful today that we don't have a guilty silence. We who know Christ, we who know the truth of the word, we who know the gospel, we who know the urgency to get it out. Now we can go, indeed we must go and proclaim him wherever we go. And may the Lord give us strength to do that. 
That's why I started this morning by pointing out some of the things that we're already involved in. I want us to see that things are already happening, that things are on the way, but of course we know there's still more to do. And as long as we have life and breath, let's use it to make his glories known wherever we can and encourage others to get to wherever they can go so that we can play a part of seeing that his glories will go out to the nations. Yes, there was a time of strategic withdrawal for, for proper and more in-depth training, but it's not to be continually in that state. No, we can't continue to stay in a strategic withdrawal. We need to look further at what Jesus is. He is a spiritual witness. This was to fulfill, Matthew says, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus came to fulfill all that was predicted about him in the law and the prophets. And Matthew often points out those things that Jesus is fulfilling. And here he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 42. It's in fact the longest citation of the Old Testament found in the Gospel of Matthew. And he's using this passage at this time as he organizes the material that he has on Jesus to show why Jesus was withdrawing, to show the contrast between the behavior and the attitudes of the scribes and the Pharisees and that of Jesus, to explain who he came to save and his people and who would believe in him among the Jews and the Gentiles, and it would explain the source of his power, the spirit of the living God who descended upon him at his baptism and guided him throughout his life. Matthew, as I said, is quoting here from Isaiah 42. And this is found in a larger section of Isaiah 40 to 53 where there are sections that refer to the servant of the Lord. That would have great meaning in the original context. It has great meaning in the context of Jesus. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God is telling the people, They've rebelled, they've turned against me, it's been difficult, I'm going to send you into exile, it's going to be hard, you're going to pay for the price of your rebellion and your disobedience. And so for 39 chapters, they're just hearing, we're going to go off into exile, and then they do. And then the very first word in chapter 40 is, comfort, comfort my people. And in that context then, for the next several chapters, God will talk about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, who would be the promise through whom God will fulfill the better days that were to come, the better days he promised to those in exile. And Matthew wants his first readers, and he wants us today to know that this servant of the Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this prophecy, I want you to notice the direct and strong relationship between the Lord, and the word behind that is Yahweh, and the Messiah, or the servant. Notice the personal pronouns that are used. My servant, whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Just think of the wonder of those titles. Think of what we could do to understand in a greater way who this Jesus is. Notice they also reflect the uniqueness, the relationship that is between Jesus and God the Father. Isn't that what Jesus pointed out to us a few passages ago in Matthew 11 where he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father? We see here an affirmation of the uniqueness of that relationship, and it's affirmed here as it's fulfilled in the prophecy given through Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to look at it now briefly in four sections. 
The first is the chosen and loved servant. The chosen and loved servant. So the text says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. So we have the Father here, Yahweh, declaring that he is the one who has chosen the servant who is the son. The servant who would be the one who would bridge the gap between God and men. That this servant is Jesus. And what's interesting is the particular term that's used for servant here is used only this time. This one time in Matthew. Matthew wants us to see the uniqueness of what's going on as this term is used here. This Jesus is the elect one of God. He's chosen by the Father to be the Messiah. To be the Savior of his people for the reason for which he came. And because that is true, because he is the elect one, because he has this unique relationship with the Father, then that is good news for us, we who are in Christ. Because we know then, because we are in Christ, and it's through Christ that we also are among the chosen ones, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We've already said that Jesus has said he will choose those to whom he will reveal the Father. And those to whom he reveals the Father come to Jesus and in him are swept up to this movement of the Spirit full of grace and mercy that ushers them into the kingdom of heaven and prepares them for eternal destiny. And I'm so glad that over 40 years ago when I was lost in the blindness and darkness of my sin that God swept me up in that movement and said, come unto me and find eternal life. And my heart was open and my, my will was set free and my eyes could see. And I said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I, I knelt next to my bed in a struggle of religion that had gone into my life for over 15 months as I was reading different religions and wondering which one was true. Suddenly at that moment, I knew it was Jesus. I said, have mercy on me. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to sweep us up in this movement of grace and mercy to usher us into the kingdom of heaven. Because it's all rooted in Christ, who is the chosen and loved servant of the Lord. Moreover, this son, who is the chosen one, is beloved of the Lord. Three times in Matthew, we have this word that is used here to describe the father's attitude towards the son. It's already here in Matthew 12, 18. This is my beloved. But we can see it when we go back to Matthew 3, verse 17, at his baptism, where the Father from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then later on in the ministry of Jesus, as he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's transformed into a whiteness and a brightness that can barely be described, what did the Father say again? He said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's so good to know that the father was pleased with the son, well pleased, satisfied, joyful in the son. And though the religious leaders would despise him, the father is pleased with him, taking delight over him. And the good news for us today, my friends, we who are in Christ, is that if we are in Christ, God is pleased with us because of the righteousness of Christ. And on a rainy and gloomy morning, that is a bright news that should encourage our hearts that in Christ we are beloved and chosen and secure and blessed and kept because of the chosen and loved servant. Secondly, Jesus is the Spirit-empowered Messiah. 
The text goes on and says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And so notice now, just in the context of just a couple verses, we see all three members of the Holy Trinity, the Father that is mentioned, the Son and the Spirit present and mentioned, and that the Holy Spirit was given and to come upon the Messiah in fulfillment of prophecy that the Messiah would be Spirit-anointed, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led. And that is what we see if we just look at a study just on the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit of God. We see that it was the Spirit of God who was guiding the Messiah in all aspects of his ministry. And so in some ways we might say then that we're in the age of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was the one that moved the Messiah to accomplish all the plan of God. And then as the Son ascended back to the the right hand of God, the Spirit descends on the church, and everyone who believes that at the moment they believed are indwelt by that same Spirit of God, sealed unto redemption, filled with His power, so that we can continue then to carry out this ministry that Jesus has sent us out to fulfill, sent us out to carry on. And so the Holy Spirit is not only our friend today, He's the one who guides us that we might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we, we emphasize this mention of the Spirit of God here because it prepares us for the story that is to come next. Where the Jewish leaders reject Jesus and accuse him of operating under the power of the evil one. And to speak in such a way against the Spirit is unforgivable, as we will see next week. He who is guided by the Spirit of God will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Look at the interesting juxtaposition going on here. He has withdrawn from the scribes and the Pharisees who are opposing him. And Matthew then records from the Old Testament say, but this Messiah will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It's as if it's a subtle reminder to all of his initial readers that the Messiah is for all peoples. The Jewish leaders may have despised him during that day, but not all of the Jewish people did. But the Messiah would have an impact that would go even out to the Gentiles. And by the time we get to the end of the gospel, according to Matthew, that gospel is to go out to all people groups of the world. The Jewish people were right in recognizing that they had a special relationship with God. They were right. They were chosen and elect and loved of God. But they had forgotten that God's election of anyone is always a result of his love and grace and not as a result of anything that they have done. God simply says, I chose Israel because I loved Israel, not because they were stronger, not because they were better, not because they were more intelligent. I loved them, gave them a special role, gave them a special place, and through them the Messiah would come. And that's just what he does with us today. We're not in Christ because we're special, because we've done something, because we're more intelligent. Now we're in Christ because of God's love toward us. And this Messiah who has come with the Spirit upon him will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The whole world will know that the Messiah has come. The whole world will know that forgiveness is available to all who repent and believe. And that's a mission that continues today. I hope you have a chance to stay around at 11 a.m. to hear more about one example of what God is doing through one of our partner missionaries. He's going to visit each of the different discipleship hour classes. He's going to start in here. 
And so if you're not able to go to another class and you're not able to hang around, hang around in sanctuary, hear her presentation here before she goes off to the other classes. They'll continue with their studies, but when Carol comes in, she'll have 10 to 15 minutes to share and we'll have a chance to pray over in each of the different classes. This Messiah is the spirit-empowered Messiah. He is also the peaceful and victorious Savior. The peaceful and victorious Savior. He will not cry, not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus is not going to be one who's going to shout, who's going to tussle, who's going to bellow. bellow. The scribes and the Pharisees, that was their way of doing things. But Jesus would endure the suffering, the mocking, the persecution, but would not respond in kind. The leaders of the nations, in any situation we might find, what do they tend to do? They tend to squabble and fight and push each other and fight for the ability to dominate others, maybe be brawlers. But Jesus would not do any of this. He would not be a brawler. He would not argue. He would not shout. He would not quarrel. He will carry on his ministry in the quiet confidence that the Spirit of God is leading him and guiding him. In our number of years that we spent in the Middle East, we found there are a lot of people that like to fight just to fight. I think the Pharisees were like that. You can still see it in places today, in different cities in the Middle East. People will shout, bellow out their claims, squabble for what they want. If they feel threatened, if they feel disrespected, if they feel an injustice has been done, if they don't like what is doing, what they'll do is raise their voice and start creating a scene and trying to bring shame upon the person who they think is wronging him. I saw so many <laughs> of these kind of incidences, whether it was in Cairo, whether it was in Amman, whether it was dealing with students from different places. That's not Jesus' style. He didn't bully people. He didn't yell. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't try to bring down shame. He doesn't engage in shouting matches. He is the fulfillment of God's plan for the salvation of sinners. He sought not his own glory, but the glory of the Father. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of love. In different settings, I have an opportunity to talk to people and what they're dealing with in their personal lives. And I'll ask them the question, have, do they pass the 1 Corinthians 13 test? And we'll talk about what that means. And then I'll, we'll read the verses together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And as we talk through it, I say, okay, now, I'm going to put my name in these verses, and I want you to put your name in the verses. And then start to read. Does it read the same way? Is it still true? Is it still the word of God coming to full fruition if my name or your name is found in here? For Jesus, it was still true. He fulfilled every one of these. Because he will not quarrel. He'll be a peaceful and victorious savior. He will be the one who will bring conviction without condemnation, compassion without compromise, humility without hatred. We don't see Jesus one who loses his temper, who gets out of control. He doesn't treat his opponents with disrespect. 
He's the eternal Son of God with all power and authority, and yet he was meek. His power was always under control for the glory of God. That's our hope today, that we can rest in the one who is meek, who fulfilled the plan of God, and who can work through us that the fruit of the Spirit would be produced more and more in our lives. Moreover, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, reeds were a common sight as they grew along the edges of rivers. They grew by the thousands and the millions. If we look at all the different rivers and marshes and stuff that would have been around, they were used, they would be dried out, they'd be used as flutes or as tubes, as measuring rods or as pens. But it was not, uh, individual reed was not very strong. It could be easily bent. And since there were so many, they would just throw it away and grab another one. It was seen as insignificant in and of themselves. But Jesus would not even dare to break a bruised reed. He was mild and full of compassion, gentle and comforting to those bruised by life and bruised by sin. And that's good news for us today because we are those broken and needy reeds. Broken by sin, broken by injustice, broken by our own bad decisions. We're bruised, we're needy, we're broken down. But Jesus builds up, he saves, he heals. To be bruised is to see our sin, to see our weaknesses, our rebellion, our inability, our need for help. And God uses those weaknesses to let his glory shine through. As commentator Daniel Doriani says, but we cannot rise to maturity unless we see our immaturity. We cannot rest in his grace until we see our need for grace. But all the scribes and the Pharisees knew how to do was pound people down, pound people down, pound people down. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. As the Puritan Richard Sib, Richard Sib says, are you bruised? Be of good comfort, Jesus calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. A bruised reed he will not break. And to further the image of a meek and gentle Savior, a smoldering wick he will not quench. He will not snuff out. They used flax in those days to try to, to light them, to use them to help with candles. But flax was not known to be very long-lasting. If it got wet or moisture in any way, it would just produce a lot of smoke and not a lot of light. And so it would be thrown away and another one would be taken. Not with Jesus. He doesn't throw away his people. He deals with believers in a gentle way. He deals with those who should be aflame for the gospel but are not. He helps clear away the sin that is blocking the spirit from flowing through our lives. And then he fans the flame with the truth of his word. So that we'll be brighter and growing for his glory. He's quick to hear the words of the one who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief which is a prayer that we would grow more and more in our trusting in him, that we would grow more and more in our obedience to him, grow more and more in our understanding of him. And he's quick then to be that peaceful, victorious savior. As imperfect as we are, as weak as we are, as hopeless as we are, he loves us. 
we're his children. He takes delight in us to use us for his glory. And he will continue in his messianic ministry and preserving his saints until, until he's the hope of the nations. Until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We know that in his first coming because of his perfect righteousness and perfect sacrifice, he broke the power of sin and death, giving life to all who believe. But he continues in that ministry through us today as the gospel is proclaimed and eventually and finally he will overcome and defeat all wickedness, all injustice, all evil, and his righteousness will prevail as he rules over the nations with a rod of iron. And as we dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein all righteousness dwells. So the Gentiles will put their hope in him. This prediction of his ministry bearing fruit of the Gentiles was given a long time before Jesus came through the prophet Isaiah. But Jesus was fulfilling it in his day, and it continues to be fulfilled in ours. He came to save his people, we are told. And his people will be those that come from all over. Every nation and family and language and tongue. The great servant who will bring justice, who will bring victory, who will bring to consummation all that God has planned. He will win the nations one day and receive them as his, his inheritance. And in his name, they put their hope. The expression of in his name or in the name of means to put trust in the whole person. His identity, his mission, his character, his conduct. Friends, I hope this morning it is the confession of your tongue and the reality of your lives that he is your hope and you have put your hope in the name of the Lord. The, the Proverbs say that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. In his name, in all that Jesus is, we can put our trust. We can climb into his lap, so to speak, and he carries us and he leads us and he guides us. And in him we can have hope. And in biblical terms, hope means assurance, confidence, conviction that the Lord will do what he says he will do. So we need a stronger word, as it were, in English for the word hope when we talk about biblical hope. It is that confidence that he will do what he said he will do. As we've seen this morning, when Jesus came, and in this passage, instead of continuously quarreling with his enemies, he brings ongoing unity and peace. Instead of wounding further those who are hurt already, he brings healing. Instead of insisting on his own way, he seeks the way of the Father and the good of others. Instead of oppression and condemnation, he brings justice and liberation. So as we trust Jesus, as we follow him, as he leads us, we find peace. We find the rest for which our heart longs for. And we find the confidence that God will keep his word in Christ. So I might summarize this way. Biblically, the word hope does not mean a doubtful I, I wish, I hope it will happen. Biblical hope is the phrase, I know so, because God has said it, and he will do it. The Gentiles, the nations, all who believe in Jesus can have this firm hope and assurance. The one who has authority over sin 
over death, over demons, over oppression, will bring the ultimate victory one day. He will appear in glory and great power, which is the hope of all who put their trust in him. Do you live in that hope today? Next week, we'll continue in our study of Matthew as we see that the Jewish leaders did not recognize the spirit-empowering ministry of the Messiah, even saying it was of evil origin. That will be to their eternal peril. But until we get to that passage next week, what are some lessons we might take away from our time in the Word this morning? Because at times even Jesus withdrew, we will follow his example and take time to rest and be refreshed in him. He is our strength. He is the one that wants to guide us. He knows what we need to do. He knows the direction we need to go. Take time to rest in Jesus and be refreshed. Secondly, because Jesus is the beloved of the Father, we ask him to fill our hearts with love for others. If he is the beloved of the Father, if the Holy Spirit has poured love down in our hearts, then we should ask the Lord to fill our hearts that we might show love to all those that are around us because that is what we need to be. And that is what they need from us. Thirdly, because Jesus was empowered by the Spirit, we submit ourselves to the Spirit's leading in our own lives. The Holy Spirit will never mislead us. He will always guide us to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He will always guide us to understand this word. We can trust him and ask him to lead us and guide us for the honor of God each day. Fourthly, because Jesus was gentle with those who are broken and hurting, we ask him to help us be the same with those around us. And lastly, because Jesus is the hope of the nations, we commit ourselves to bringing that good news to the nations. What a great privilege we have to know a Savior who is so good and have a message that is so powerful and a hope that is so sure and an eternal life that is so rich. Let us be among those who go out and share it both across the street and around the world, as God leads us for his glory, let us pray. Our Holy Father, in moments like this, we're mindful and thankful for a good Savior who shows the way, who has led the way, who is the way, and who has made all provision for us to walk in obedience and holiness. Father, as you've reminded us in your word this morning, and as we're commanded to become more like Jesus, we fall on our knees. We say, oh God, help us. We need the spirit of God to be at work in our lives. We thank you for the example of the spirit working in the life of Jesus. And we have every confidence that as we trust the spirit of God, he will lead us to become more like Jesus. Father, as we have already prayed this morning in our, our dark world full of chaos and confusion, thank you for a true word and thank you for a confident word. Would you guide us in that word this week? We want to be available for your service. So lead us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close out our service?